listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of ACB Advocacy Update. This is Claire Stanley, the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist with the American Council of the Blind, and my lovely co-host... You're kicking, you're talking about Tulane, right? That's right. Well, yeah. my, my lovely co-host is my guide dog, but I guess the other kind of lovely co-host. Right. Ooh. It's rare for me to be called lovely, but I'll take it. Clark Ooh. Rockfall, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for ACB. Thanks to everyone listening over their favorite podcast player, Claire, or <laughs> if you're not using your favorite, that doesn't really make sense to me. I'd, I'd find your favorite and stick with it. Uh, as well as everyone listening over ACB Radio. And as always, you can find out more about ACB on our website, www.acb.org. And for the rest of 2020, our podcasts are underwritten by Sprint T-Mobile. So thank you, Sprint T-Mobile, for supporting our podcast. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Brent, Sprint T-Mobile. We appreciate it. <coughs> and because we're the advocacy team here at ACB, please, please, please always feel free to reach out to Clark or myself with any advocacy issues that you would like us to address. And you can always reach us at advocacy at acb.org. Again, that's advocacy at acb.org. Great. Um, well, we will jump in today. We are talk talking about a topic that I have a feeling we're going to be talking about for months and months to come because it's super timely and super important. We're talking about voting. Uh, super, <laughs> something that's super important, um, super, super critical. Um, but more specifically, we'll be talking about um, accessible voting for those of us who are blind and visually impaired. We have a very full cast of speakers today, um, so we'll let them go through and introduce themselves. But first I'm going to introduce um, one guest that we're um, extremely fortunate to have with us today. I'm very honored. If you listened to one of our community event calls a few days ago, you heard him speak as well. Um, but Commissioner Palmer from the EAC, do you mind going ahead and introducing yourself? Sure, thank you. Uh, I'm Don Palmer, I'm a commissioner with the EAC. Um, just, I, I guess now it's almost two years ago, or I'm losing track of time with COVID, but um, <laughs> Commissioner Hovland and I were uh, approved by the Senate uh, just, just, you know, over a year ago uh, at the tail end of the, the previous Congress. And, you know, so we've been on board for uh, almost two years now. And, um, you know, it's a four-member commission. It is was created with the uh, 2002 Help America Vote Act. And, um, you know, so I have a, a little bit of a background in voting. I, uh, I was an election official in Virginia and Florida. I had served in the voting section of DOJ and obviously one of the laws that we enforced was HAVA in the disability, uh, the disability parts of the, of that statute. We would work it often in tandem with the civil rights, I'm sorry, with the disability rights section of the department as well. Uh, and so that's a little bit of my background. Great. Just in a like a 30 seconds or more, if you need, can you tell everybody what the EAC is for those who weren't familiar? Sure. So we are a we're established by the 2002 Help America Vote Act, and we're a four member commission. Uh, it's an independent bipartisan commission created really for the Congress. And so we're not technically part of the um, executive branch. We're actually an independent agency, which is mm -hmm. sort of rare. We, um, our primary mission is the 
standard development and testing of our voting systems in, in the country. Uh, we uh, accredit labs that actually do that testing. And so we provide the voluntary voting system guidelines and they address all types of areas such as accessibility, uh, security, usability, all the different functions to make sure that the systems that are purchased by our counties across the country uh, in states occasionally, that they are um, approved by the EAC in one way or another. Some, some states may not require full EAC certification. They may, re they may adopt our standards that we develop or they may have their systems approved by our accredited labs, but over 40 states um, use our standards in one way or, or another in the development of their voting systems. We also collect a lot of data when it comes to elections. We have what we call the uh, Election Administration Voting Survey, the EVE survey. It creates a lot of good data, it collects a lot of good data after every federal election and that's provided to stakeholders, election officials, and the Congress who've said that it's the gold standard in, in, in sort of voting data. Um, we do a number of different areas for best practices uh, with states through our clearinghouse program. So when we have pr primary season like we have here and we've had uh, lessons learned hearings, mm -hmm. we, we work with our, with our advisory groups and we work with local election officials to develop best practices and then push that back out to local election officials. That's great. Thank you for that that overview. It's it's something really fascinating and, and great for all of us, I think, to learn about, especially now in this this general session coming up. So, great. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our our other two speakers, and then we'd love to kind of have interaction amongst everybody. Um, but we're also very um, fortunate to have two of our own ACB state affiliate leaders. Um, so why don't we have you guys each in turn introduce yourself and then we can jump more in some questions. But first, uh, Carrie Chapman, do you mind introducing yourself? No, thanks for having me, Claire. And, and, um, my name is Carrie Chapman and I am the state president for the Iowa Council of the United Blind. I'm an affiliate with um, ACB, better known as ICUB to a lot, but um, I've been state president since um, 2016. I absolutely love the name of your state affiliate. I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> great. And then Barbara, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Thanks, Claire and Clark, for inviting me. And I am Barbara Salisbury, and I am the president of um, ACB Indiana. And uh, I've been president of ACB Indiana since... Uh, I was elected, I think, in two, 2017, started my term in 2018, so, and um, so we adopted, I don't know if you want me to get into this now, or do you want to? Well, sure, let's, let's go ahead, so. Yeah, let's um, dive right in. Yeah, let's, okay. let's go, per perfect okay, transition, well, go for it. <laughs> okay, so in 2018, um, we adopted um, a resolution at our, at our convention business meeting um to address um the inaccessibility of um of absentee voting and um we recognized that you know absentee voting has always been inaccessible to people who are blind and vision impaired it is paper driven and so um that's kind of where it started for us in the fall of 2018 and in 2019, we did started doing some research. We made some contacts, but 
it was in 2020 when we really kind of hit the ground. Um, we recognized that we felt like we had a window and to really make a difference with, uh, with COVID coming on the scene and um, recognizing that voting would likely look different this year. And um, so we kind of swung into gear on um, making contacts, getting in touch with the elections division, making public comment, uh, writing uh, letters to the election um, division and its uh, council, and um, and then also just providing you know our a copy of our absentee um, our resolution, and um, so that kind of got us started, and um, so we. Um, I don't so know Barbara, how to yeah. it's fascinating to hear that you and the, the work of the ACB of Indiana started on voting um, basically two years ago, right? Uh, aside from absentee voting, and I guess I'll start with Carrie. Carrie, what does um, in-person voting look like for people with disabilities in Iowa, especially because you all, you all caucus? So what is caucusing like and uh, accessing the polls in person like in Iowa? Well, um, in terms of voting in our state, uh, you have the option for the absentee ballot, which obviously um, to us is, is not accessible. Um, you have the option of early voting um, or voting in person the day um, of election day. And then um, there is also an option for car side. So you would drive to your polling uh, place mm -hmm. and then uh, two people would come out and you could cast your vote from your car um, however, uh, those machines that they bring out to the car for you to cast your ballot, those, those are not accessible machines. So, um, if you do go into, um, uh, vote, you do have the option of using, um, an accessible machine most of the time. Um, what you run into with that is, um, are they turned on? Uh, do the workers know how to use them? If you don't, um, those sort of things. So, um, but those are kind of the options we do have for, for voting here in Iowa. And Barbara, we, what sort of in-person voting um, accommodations are there in Indiana? Well, we do have, um, you know, voting uh, accessible machines, um, you know, where you can sit down, put headphones on and, um, and listen and make your selections. And um, so that's pretty accessible throughout the state. Those machines are for in-person voting. I am not aware of any kind of portable machine that is brought to, um, for example, if you had a, a team or a board to come out and help you vote, maybe in your home, that would be considered absentee voting. And we do not have any kind of portable machine. Um, but uh, again, that would be with assistance um, because it would be still paper driven. And um, so that's interesting that Iowa has car side. I think that's very, I've never heard of that. So that's interesting. And Commissioner Palmer, uh, if I may, the, the Help America Vote Act has uh, specific language about the accessibility of polling locations and the required equipment um, for accessible 
in-person voting. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? It, it does. And, and HABA is very explicit. It's one of those laws that it really explicitly codifies the rights of voters with disabilities. It talks about how a voting system should be accessible for individuals with disabilities, including non-visual accessibility for the blind and visually impaired in a manner that provides the same opportunity uh, for access and participation as for other voters. And so this is why we focus so much that that, that right to vote includes privacy and independence. And HAB has really turned out to be a, a very good statute when it comes to voting and for voters with disabilities. You know, we just got a recent round of uh, funds from the federal government called the CARES Act. And part of that was, is obviously we're going to see an increase in, in vote by mail or absentee voting. And we wanted to make sure it was very clear in our guidance that we provided to the states that you may use these, um, these funds to cover increased costs relating to the pandemic needed to ensure voting by persons with disabilities. So we were very explicit with that. And in fact, we said that you may use previous election security grants that were appropriated uh, back in 2018 and 2020. So the reality of it is that since 2018, there's been over a billion dollars in funds from the federal government. And we tried to be as explicit as possible to make sure that they, the states knew that this included um, voters with, disability, with disabilities. I think we were even more specific because what we said was, we, there was a question we had from the states that, you know, if we plan to expand our mail voting and absentee services for the 2020 election as a result of the pandemic, are we required to make this process accessible for voters with disabilities? And our clear, very clear answer in black and white was yes, that those hover requirements related to equal access for voting for voters with disabilities does do not change because of the pandemic. And so voters with disabilities must be able to vote privately and independently. And so any improvements for systems or the election process or equipment must also address accessibility for voters with disabilities. And so I think this is, I, I'm hopeful, I believe this is one reason why as states are looking at their, you know, absentee and mail ballot process and, and an increase with that, that they're also thinking of parallel paths for voters with disabilities that may need some different form of technology to meet the requirements of HAVA. So based, uh, going off of that, um, I know, Carrie, I know Barbara was saying that COVID kind of really spurred on the the need to have accessible absentee voting, as I think a lot of Americans understand, because COVID has really changed the landscape. Can you talk about what um, your state affiliate has been doing as far as promoting accessible absentee ballot? And I guess with the precursor of asking, has COVID um, led you guys to, to look at it more greatly? Is, is that a fair assumption that COVID has really um, pushed this, this issue into the forefront of what you guys are doing? Oh, absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it did. And yeah, and I think, I don't know that accessibility is on the, um, in their minds as they make these adjustments. But I mean, for our primary, back in our primary would have been in May, but it was pushed off till the first of June. And vote, uh, voting by mail or voting absentee was expanded pretty broadly for that primary. But of course, 
that option would was not accessible. Gotcha. Carrie, yeah. was that a similar experience in Iowa? Yes, absolutely. Um, we were we were hopeful with the pandemic that um, this might speed up the process because everyone was getting um, you know an absentee ballot. So we thought this might actually uh, work in our favor, if you will, um, because everyone was getting a ballot. Um, but obviously, um, it did not. Um, I do know I called uh, regarding, you know, um, what, you know, what are they doing with people with disabilities um, in terms of the absentee ballot and they said, well, you still have the option of going in um, and casting a vote in person. And um, <laughs> of course, I said, you know, that's not always an option. Um, there's transportation issues. Um, there's, you know, even um, in regards to like uh, people with uh, you know, other high risk, I should, I should say, um, that's not always an option, just one, to jump in your car or two, especially in the middle of a pandemic, to be about, around a bunch of people. And I was told that I could, um, I would be going up to the library to vote and um, I could do car side. And I thought, okay, well, um, you know, one, I don't drive, but let's say I get a, a, a driver. Um, I asked about being able to vote uh, from my car um, and they said, well, she said, no, I'm sorry, but the, you know, the machine isn't available um, in terms of accessibility. That's something you would have to come in and do. Um, and then, so I, when I reached out to the Secretary of State's office to ask what was being done now, they said, well, they had changed, um, they'd taken our advice and they had changed um, some of the font on the, uh, the print on some of their print material and um, different things to make it easier to read and you know for those of uh, for those that have low vision that sort of thing but that they weren't going to be able to do anything in terms of um, an accessible absentee ballot at this point because the pilot program that they were suggesting um, they were hoping um, at the beginning of the year they were hoping to do a pilot program uh, to try out you know the accessible ballots um, kind of fell through the cracks and um, you know no one really seemed to be interested in it um, at that point because of the pandemic mm -hmm. and obviously there was a lot more things on the forefront um, mm -hmm. so we were kind of left um, we kind of were left there and just continued moving forward and trying to get um, make some progress I guess if you will yeah and I sorry Barbara Commissioner Bar um... <laughs> Commissioner Palmer, there we go. Yeah. Barbara, you almost got promoted. <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner Palmer, you mentioned the, the additional funding through the CARES Act, uh, $400 million available to the states um, to assist them with the uh, changes in their election policies due to the coronavirus and how that can be used for um, accessible voting in elections as well. Um, what other tools or resources is the, the EAC offering or making available to help states navigate these waters? Well, the EAC, uh, in addition to the 400 million, you know, as I, I sort of I alluded to it is there, there was also 425 million in HAVA security funds that were approved in mm -hmm. January of 2020. And we specifically adopted a policy where those funds could also be used to, uh, to respond to the coronavirus and to try to make um, these uh, and try to make voting more accessible. Uh, we, you know, we've done a number of hearings and pu public hearings on some of the 
um, challenges that we had in the primaries. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, and we also had some meetings earlier in the year uh, where we brought together election officials and people with disabilities uh, to talk about practical solutions. I think that, and I think someone else mentioned this, is that the the COVID-19 season and sort of the the use of technology is, you've seen a, an increase in the number of states that are more willing to uh, either pilot or adopt online ballot delivery and marking solutions. And I think we saw about seven states in the primaries um, adopt that. And I'm hopeful that, you know, I'm hopeful that actually in Indiana and Iowa that we'll see something by uh, 2022. I, I hope that there'll actually be a pilot because I think it's a great opportunity to do a pilot. Uh, I think right now there's about 16 states in, in, in the District of Columbia. And then the, when you add on the seven states that are doing something new, I think in the, you know, I think there's above 20 states that are doing something uh, with the bot online ballot delivery and marking solutions for voters with disabilities. Um, you know, we're, we continue to follow that research. Um, we've actually, we've, you know, we've provided grants in the past for the development of accessible technologies like ballot marking. And so that's really where I see the EAC going is hopefully we can work with the states to highlight what their pilots were and what their systems are. So when a state is looking at, at their options, they're not only hearing from, you know, groups like, like the, uh, like yourself at ACB, but also from the EAC on on what has worked in other states. That's great. And uh, I'll start with Barbara. Um, since, well, since Commissioner Palmer brought it up, um, <laughs> online ballot delivery and electronic delivery of absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. uh, has that been discussed in Indiana? It has been. And, um, uh, we have met with the Secretary of State. We wrote a very extensive letter, sent it to them, and have talked with them. We've also talked and explored and re done a lot of research into, you know, what is available um, to, that's accessible for, for delivering a ballot and for somebody to mark it and then to send it back. And then, um, you know, we've, we tested out the Omni ballot, the Democracy Live system. Uh, we've looked at others. And, um, and then also, you know, in Indiana, we have the uh, military overseas voting system, which, um, um, which is, a, is an electronic system. I mean, the, the, the ballot can be delivered electronically and it can be um, sent back electronically, or it can be printed and faxed. So um, there, those are some of the options that we have here as far as electronic, and that's only, at this point, the military option. Um, so electronically, um, that's about it. But we have definitely talked about and researched and looked at uh, uh, the options that we have as far as what could be and what we hope will be. And Carrie, as we just heard Barbara talk about um, what they've explored in Indiana, we've certainly heard from uh, many other states looking into this possibility as well. Is the online ballot delivery and marking um, something that ICUB has been exploring as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, pretty much uh, exactly what um, Barbara had said is, um, you know, we've we've looked at Democracy Live and other 
other options um, that uh, could be possible in terms of an accessible absentee ballot. Um, we've even um, had the option of trying out the Omni ballot um, was sent to us just to kind of to see what that might look like. Um, we've, we've explored all of our options. We've also met with the Secretary of State um, and met with them a couple times actually and sent all the information that we've been given. A lot of states have um, shared information, especially the states that now have accessible absentee ballots. So we were able to share that with the Secretary of State's office. Um, and we also have um, the option for military and uh, people that work overseas to be able to do something very similar when they're casting their votes, like Barbara had said. So um, the technology is definitely out there. Um, it's just, you know, getting everything in place and, and uh, them approving, you know, um, some sort of system that would make it accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Go ahead, Mark. Commissioner Palmer, you, you mentioned in your introduction that you were an election official in the Commonwealth of Virginia, as well as the great state of Florida. Um, what sort of challenges do you, do you think, it, based off your past experience, or do you know from talking with election officials, that the states and localities are, are facing during COVID and as they prepare for the general elections this year? Well, I think one of, you know one of the challenges is it, it's hard enough to do a presidential election uh, because of you know you have such high turnout and it really stresses the system. And so what you really have is, in many ways, is like a natural disaster that's just an ongoing, never-ending natural disaster. You know, we've had to administer elections and and earthquakes and uh, hurricanes and all you know, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy or, or Superstorm Sandy. Um, they all had unique challenges that really impacted voters and then it really made life difficult for election officials as they try to adjust to it. And so with COVID, um, you know, it's really a big adjustment and it's, a, it's nationwide. So every voter is having to adjust somewhat the way they approach voting, how they approach, you know, when do I need to do it? Maybe I do need to vote by mail if I, you know, Maybe they've never done it before. And that's one of the reasons you see such, you know, challenges and problems at times is because it really takes a while for a voter to, to get used to voting in a certain way or a certain machine. And, and when you change, there's going to be mistakes. They're not really used to it. It's difficult. It can be difficult. And so I just see this as, you know, our election officials are great because they really are trying to adjust to the system. To the process and, and making sure voters have options in voting. And, uh, and so instead of just having one regional or state natural disaster like Florida with a hurricane, we have an entire, I wouldn't say an entire country, but we have a lot of the country that's dealing with potential, uh, the closure of polling places and trying to adjust to a new way of, a new way of voting. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. In. Uh, this will be it's my first presidential election as a, a resident of Virginia, and for the past three or four elections, my polling location has been at the elementary school just two or three blocks away, you know, an easy walk either before or after work. Um, but due to uh, many jurisdictions facing a, a shortage of poll workers due to fears about the coronavirus, um, our polling location has changed. And Claire, you're a new resident of Maryland. 
Um, have you started to look at what options are available to you, where your polling location is, and starting to map out your game plan for election day? You know, I haven't done my homework yet, but it has been on my list of things to do because I had heard rumors that there might not even be a polling place in my city. I might have to go a city or more over. So it definitely oh changes the landscape. Whereas, yeah, it used to be the, the local elementary school, whereas, you know, it, it might not be that way. So it's definitely a, a, a changing, changing tide for sure. So. Mm. Mm. And Carrie and Barbara, are you all hearing mm -hmm. the same things in Indiana and Iowa? Yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, here. yeah, I mean, our polls are going to be open now. What that means, we don't know because of the of the workers. The workers have to be there. I know in the primaries, um, some of our polling places were juggled. You know, they were kind of juggled around, you know, and we voted in a different place than we normally vote. We did go to the polls, my husband and I. But um, we um, uh, had went to a different place because of the of the COVID and how they had to move it around. So we'll see what November looks like because we have really no clue at this point. Um, I mean, even though they say this, it will be this way or that way. <laughs> we know in this climate and with that we're in that that could change. So, yeah, it, it's definitely, a, you know, mm -hmm. we, we see what we're in August now, what, yeah. what's going to happen in November could look drastically different. I feel like we're in a, a time where we can't take anything for granted because things are forever evolving because of COVID. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Carrie and um, Barbara, I have a question for you. And this is always my favorite kind of question to ask people because I call it my magic wand question because <laughs> I personally would love to have a magic wand for everything um. in life. Um, <laughs> so, Carrie, starting with you and then Barbara, if you had a magic wand, what would you do or what would you make it look like for voting um, to be accessible, completely accessible for those of us who are blind and visually impaired, and of course the whole disability community, but especially looking at absentee voting, but of course it could be broader too to all voting, but what would it look like for it to be fully accessible if you, if you could make that happen in your state? So Carrie, you can go first. I guess I want to clarify. So in terms of an accessible ballot um, that everyone would be able to use if, need, if, if they needed if, to. Exactly, yep. Um, and accessible, I, I guess it's actually, it's not simple, but it's, it's fairly simple. Um, I guess for me, um, when I think of an accessible absentee ballot, it would be one that, because um, for a lot of us with disabilities, technology is key. And so um, an accessible absentee ballot that uh, would be available for an individual to use based on what their needs are. So, um, you know, whether that's getting that link and um, so we, I, I'm assuming we'd all get a link, let's say like an Omni ballot, and we would be able to open that up and fill out the information and then uh, print it off and mail it back in. Um, mm -hmm. But we would be able to use that with our own technology. So whether that, mm -hmm. that's with a screen reader or for someone that might not be able to use their hands real well, um, but being able to use that technology in a way that's accessible for everyone to be able to vote um, and uh, participate fully um, with these uh, absentee ballots. 
I like how you said that it would be different for each person because I think that's something that we've come to recognize more and more and I hope people have come to recognize that when it comes to accommodations for persons with disabilities um, there is no one size fits all and I, I think that's beautiful right that we're all different and we all do things differently um, so I think that's a really profound thing to recognize is that yeah it's not going to be the same for everybody and that's okay mm -hmm. and that's what we have to really recognize when we're working mm -hmm. on these issues. Yeah. What about one you, Barbara? We, oh, oh, sorry. No, go please, ahead. please go ahead, Gary. Oh, the only thing I was going to say, the one thing that we've really pushed um, when we, we passed uh, the resolution at our state convention um, was that it was for individuals who can not mark, see, or hold a ballot. Um, and so it's not just for the blind community. It's, it's for um, anybody that that's, you know, in that category of not being able to, to mark, see, or hold. So we've, mm -hmm. we've really pushed that and stressed that when we've spoken um, to individuals and wrote letters and made phone calls. Yeah. That's great. And what about you, Barbara? If you had a magic wand, what would okay. <laughs> and I think Palmer's taking notes, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, th I actually and I th have a, I actually have a magic wand. I'm, I'm just okay, good. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Well, and I think Carrie's last point was is really good. And um, but but if I had a magic wand and if I had the silver bullet, <laughs> um, I know um, and I've heard this from some of my folks. OK, so electronic access is honestly the best for the majority, I think, of people with disabilities, people who are blind and vision impaired. Uh, we all love our computers and our iPhones and our, our smartphones, and we can do a, a heck of a lot with those. And, and, and that's how I would see myself, you know, accessing a ballot, marking the ballot, and sending the ballot back. Okay, so I am being able to verify it, the whole nine yards, but I know there are others that are not going to do that. And but yet they may want to uh, access, you know, absentee ballot, if you want to call it absentee. I've even stopped calling it that. I'm calling it remote voting now. I, it seems like we've left the term absentee behind, but even though that's what really is in our resolution. Um, but I think, you know, being able to even access it with low tech, and mm -hmm. I don't know how that's going to be done, but uh, I know that, you know, I have some of my members that keep saying, why can't we do it by phone, by selection of men on a menu or something like that? And I was like, well, you know, who knows what we might be able to achieve, um, but let's do what we can at least at this point. And, but nevertheless, that would be my magic wand. That it, there would be some low tech and in addition to the high tech. And so it would really capture everybody in the, uh, in the visually impaired blindness community. Mm. Yeah, because there's seniors, you know, we have a lot of you know, seniors, you know, losing vision and some of them are, are pretty computer savvy and, and with their iPads and their smartphones, but um, many of them aren't and they're still looking for that low tech. And um, I think that would be great to have that magic wand to, to provide that as well. That's great. You talked, Barbara, about being able to submit the um, your your ballot electronically, um, I just think, and I know there are so many different hurdles to overcome to to get to that point. Yeah. Um, 
but it's something that I often think about because um, I'm, I'm a resident of the state of Maryland. So in NFB v. Limone, this, the, the court ruling um, mm-hmm. in the Fourth Circuit, they said, you know, you can vote uh, electronically, get your ballot, but then you print out your ballot. And I'm such a millennial. I'm a true millennial. I don't have a printer. I have no use for a printer. Even in law school, I never printed out a paper. We submitted mm-hmm. all electronically now. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of always been my little thing. Like, what do I do? I don't own a printer. I don't mm-hmm. need a printer. And so that's definitely something that I often kind of yeah. struggle with in my head. What do we do about that? <laughs> well, well, not only that, I mean, I, one of my members even said, well, what if I print it out and my printer doesn't have ink in it and I don't know it, you know, exactly. Or it, or it doesn't have blank ballot. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have enough ink or whatever, or it gets part of the ballot and it doesn't get all of it or, or whatever. And so I think being able to do it, fill it out electronically, review it and submit it. Um, and you know, I know there are going to be lots of questions and, you know, states are going to be staggering with this, <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, if that's where it has to be. And if we have to print it out, then we're going to have to have that, you know, IRA and be my eyes, I guess. But then we, what do we do? We give up part of our privacy. So, yeah. Yeah. And this is, I think we, <laughs> at least four out of five of us on this call agree that that's the, uh, the gold standard for, uh, mm-hmm. remote accessible uh, voting. And mm-hmm. Mr. Palmer, I'm not going to, this isn't a congressional hearing. I'm not going to put you <laughs> on the spot. Uh, but it, we are aware that the Department of Homeland Security and the EAC um, came out with a report earlier earlier this year saying that an electronic ballot return, it's, you know, it's, it's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I guess I'm curious is as we are uh, exploring these options, and you mentioned that uh, you know pilot programs are an, an essential part of this year and moving accessible voting forward. Um, do you think that's an area that needs further research as well? Well, yeah, I think that I think that pilot projects actually are, do well because. Um, it's an opportunity to test the security to make sure that it's use, usable by the voters that you're trying to you're trying to serve. I mean, mm-hmm. I think what one of the ways to address and look at this issue really is, is that you know, as an election official, I encourage you to interview them because there have been times in my career where I have a plan B and C. The legislature gives me certain powers for voters that may be overseas, maybe in the military, maybe on a submarine. There may be um, a lineman who is deploying to New Jersey from Virginia. And I've always been able to give them options in voting, but I've also had to say no to voters because their circumstances didn't fit what the law allowed me to do. And so voters actually are disenfranchised based on their circumstances. And the way I see it, if you truly want to make sure no voter is left behind, you, you've got to have some options for election officials and for those voters. And you know, part of it is, is that, you know, there's a risk in, as we, as the debate goes on about in-person voting, you may have a risk, a certain low level risk of COVID or by mail, the post office might delay your, your the return of your ballot. Mm-hmm. There, there are risks in all types of voting. And um, the reality of it is, is that any sort of electronic return, which over 30, 32 states 
have some sort of electronic return for overseas military or voters with disabilities, these legislatures have made a decision that we, we think that these voters are going to have some difficulty and we want to make sure that they can participate no matter what their circumstance is. And so there has to be part of the equation because if there's no answer to that, that individual that's deploying literally two days before the election day and they haven't thought about voting and there's no way for them to get their ballot back, are we really gonna do that? Or do we need some sort of option with the technology we have to ensure that they, that person can, can participate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a, what a great point. Uh, our election <laughs> officials need to have flexibility um, so that our voters can have a full catalog of available options um, and vote in a way that meets their needs. So mm -hmm. yeah, couldn't, could not agree with you more. And you mentioned uh, being able to vote safely. The Election Assistance Commission published some, some guidelines for voting safely during COVID as well. Isn't that correct? Yes, we have. Obviously, that was one of our primary concerns, and we developed that in conjunction with the CDC, and then they just actually came up with an update probably about three or four weeks ago. So we have provided um, guidance on, you know, how you clean the voting systems themselves without, you know, damaging the equipment, but also what are some general parameters for voting in early voting or on election day and, or in an office to make sure that the election workers are safe and the voters. And, you know, there's been, there's been a couple of reports where the level of risk continues to decline, uh, where they're confident in saying that nobody, you know, was infected during the voting process. You know, I, I'm hopeful that we'll continue to see those with the remaining states that have primaries. And so that should be a message that we send is that there are a lot of precautions that are, that are being taken in conjunction with the CDC mm -hmm. and that people should not be afraid to go vote in person. Yeah. And may I say something, Clark? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is Barbara. Yeah. I, I mean, during our primary, um, when we, we did, like I said, we did go to the polls and, uh, you know, we were spaced out, you know, they had, of course I was with my husband and he is sighted. Now, if I had been alone and I had to be spaced out, then somebody would have had to, help me with that because obviously that's a visual thing, you know, and you're looking at markings on the floor, you're keeping spaced out, you're keeping apart, you know, the same old thing that we've seen everywhere where there's been markings on the floor. But, um, but yeah, I, I am not, I am not unsympathetic to the security issues, but it's kind of above my pay grade. <laughs> and, um, but the accessibility and the able to participate in voting, and especially when it's, when the absentee or the remote voting is broadened, I think that, I think then it becomes even more of an issue. We're left out even more. I agree with you, Barbara, and I certainly appreciated Commissioner Palmer's point that all forms of voting carry risk. Um, so when it seems like some folks out there pretend that electronic voting is the only form that carries risk and it, you know, we need to have that under lock and key and not make it available, it's, it's not necessarily a, a genuine argument, right? Um, so certainly safety and security protocols need to be in place for all types of voting. All types of voting carry some level of risk and we need to be cognizant of that as we move forward. Um, additionally, Commissioner Palmer mentioned 
getting to know and talking with your election officials. And I think that's great advice for everyone. And Carrie, you and Barbara have certainly done that, communicating with your board of elections and secretaries of state. Uh, I'm curious, and I'll, I, I'll start with Carrie, but for both Carrie and Barbara, what other advice do you have for ACB members, people with disabilities, folks in other states who are working on this issue as well? Um, I guess that right off the top, I would say don't give up. Um, we have sent so many letters and made so many phone calls and reached out to so many different individuals and just be real persistent um, as you move forward. Obviously, you know, there's not a, uh, there's not a great answer of what that might look like, I guess. Um, just like we were talking about, there's many, many options, many different things that have to be considered security wise and not one thing's going to fit, um, the bill for everybody. But, um, I think just continuing to make phone calls, call the secretary of state, ask for a meeting. Um, ask when you might be able to follow up again when they tell you what they're working on. Um, if they don't follow back up with you, you follow back up with them. Reach out to mm -hmm. your senators and your state representatives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, introduce yourself. Um, uh, let them know who you are. You know, um, <clears throat> get on a personal level with them um, so they know, you know, when you call, you know, Carrie Chapman's calling. Um, mm -hmm. This issue is important to her you know, it's important to ICUB, but just being very, very persistent and, and knowing um, that, you know, that things are still moving forward, I think, uh, but definitely not giving up. And, and mm -hmm. it's been a big battle, not a battle, but it's, you know, we've, we've been working on this for quite some time. I mean, sometimes it's a daily thing um, that there's phone calls that have to be made. Um, a couple weeks ago, well, it's probably been longer than that. And my time's kind of standing still since the pandemic, but, uh, <laughs> I sent out 150 different emails um, to basically every email I could find of anyone that might listen about, um, you know, not leaving the dis um, disabled community behind during the pandemic, um, and especially during the election, because, um, you know, there's always going to be something. Right now, it's a pandemic when this rolls, you know, goes away, and hopefully it will at some point, there's going to be something else. So there's always going to be a reason not to do it. We just need to figure out how to do it and, and move forward with that. And I just want to compliment before Barbara talks. I just want to compliment that so many of our affiliates, you know, um, you guys in Iowa have been amazing, but so many of our affiliates have been doing just that. So I'm, I'm just going to gush like a proud mom that you guys are all doing amazing work. So, so thank you for your hard work. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, you know, being uh, really thoughtful uh, too is important and maybe being strategic in that really asking people in as many counties as you can to reach out to their county officials that have and ask for, uh, ask for that electronic access, even though, if, even though they may know that they're not going to get it, but ask for it. And, and then also, you know, working from the top down and, and working with the Secretary of State's office and the elections commissions. And, and, um, and when it's put back in your lap, you know, don't let it stay there, you know, and, exactly. uh, and uh, you know, hand it back to them, you know, let them know that, that uh, you know, well, you've, 
put it back in my lap. Well, you're not going to say that, but basically you've put it back in my lap. So now I'm, you know, I'm going to go regroup with my partners and, and, and make, and, and gather those partners, um, you know, kind of gather people around the table that are groups or organizations around the table that you can reach out to for various parts of that strategic plan that you've developed. And whether it be partnering in the advocacy or partnering in the marketing or partnering at the grassroots level in the county to uh, work with their local officials, but um, kind of being thoughtful about that and uh, trying to get you know, people involved on a multiple, uh, multi kind of level. So I think that that's what I would say. Uh, and, you know, and don't give up because, you know, when they put it back in your lap, I think they're hoping that's where it will stay. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to make sure that they know that it isn't going to stay there. Great. That's great advice, you guys. Thank you so much. Um, Commissioner Palmer, as we get get closer to the end of our podcast, is there just any thing that you would like to impart to voters as we get closer to the general election that you feel like you know our listeners should forever be thinking about or know about, or just any wisdom to impart as we really get deep into the election season? Well, I think that you know, and this goes back to the education of voters on if they want to vote absentee or by mail they really should start the process as early as possible. Uh, you may have some delays with the post office. You may have some bureaucratic delays. You want to make sure that if you're going to vote that way, you start early and get that ballot back you know, at least 10 days before the election, I, I would recommend. There's also going to be a, a drop-off of poll workers. We are really focusing on the need for uh, you, you know folks to step up and be a poll worker if they can. and um, you know, we have a program on September 1st, uh, National uh, National Poll Worker Recruitment Day on September 1st. And so if there's anything, you, the American Council of the Blind could work with us on sort of getting the word out, the need for poll workers, that would be, that would be great. Just one little note before I, you know, I think we also have a upcoming, uh, we're going to have an upcoming uh, round table, virtual round table. Uh, on sort of the challenges of overseas and military voters and voters with disabilities. And that's going to be, I believe, on the 18th of this month. It'll be a virtual meeting. And so uh, there are unique challenges already, and there's additional challenges with COVID. And so we feel that we should talk about these issues and some of the lessons learned. Great. Thank you for telling us about that meeting. We'll make sure to all of our listeners that we get a link up um, when we post this so that you guys can have information about that round table because we'd love for people to participate. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Well, Carrie and Barbara, as, as leaders of two of our affiliates, is there anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners as far as getting involved in their state affiliates and working on these issues? Just any last words of wisdom you would like to impart, things we haven't talked about? Not really, other than, you know, um, just to let people know, I think, and probably even with Carrie, I mean, we just keep exploring our next steps. You know, we just keep exploring what are our next steps because we're, you know, we don't want to let this drop. I would agree with that. And thank you to Claire and and, uh, Clark for all you've done. Yeah, absolutely. 
for inviting us to participate. Yeah, and, and just for being so helpful in this effort. I appreciate that. I've reached out to them more than once and uh, I really appreciate it. So. Yeah, very much so, thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. If folks would like to learn more about voting and especially voting this year during COVID-19 and advocacy work that can be done, please visit the Accessible Voting Toolkit on the ACB website at acb.org slash voting. Uh, Claire did a lot of uh, great legal wrangling and research there to put up some great resources. We've also linked to resources from other organizations such as the federal government, the Election Assistance Commission, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as the D National Disability Rights Network. And it's also a great place to stay up to date with the latest news coming out from other ACB affiliates. Um, so we'll do a, a quick shout out to uh, Tennessee, Massachusetts, and Florida for the great progress that they've made in their states um, on accessible absentee voting, and to Virginia and North Carolina for taking steps to have a resolution in place by, uh, by the general elections here this fall. So keep your fingers crossed. Great. Well, again, as always, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any advocacy issues, voting or not voting related, you can reach out to us at advocacy at acb.org. Um, I might just, you know, make Clark deal with all of the issues, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. We're, we're both here for you. Our whole staff in the national office is here to, to assist. So please feel free to reach out. And we usually end by saying keep, uh, keep advocating, but I feel like we should end by saying keep voting connections and communities keep advocating and keep voting yeah thanks everyone listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.